Hello, everybody. Today you have Jake and Seth, and we are going to discuss the 1987 holiday classic Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, starring, excuse me, starring Steve Martin and John Candy. The film was made for a budget of $30 million, and it made $49.5 million at the box office, which is not, it's probably a mild success at best. Um, it does have a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I will say I was surprised. I, I thought, I mean, tell, tell me what you think, Seth. I remember this film as being kind of like a holiday staple or holiday classic. So maybe if it, even if it didn't perform well in the box office, I feel like it captured a part of the public's imagination, at least for a brief time in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely have it in that like uh, group of just like holiday, like think I agree with you because the way I look at this film is I described it as a holiday film before and I feel like that puts certain constraints on it like there's not going to be a lot of sex in it or there's not going to be a lot of violence um and just it's a different type of humor and I think you're this is by no means a perfect film but it's a great holiday film and there's a reason it's a classic and there's a reason I watch it every year around the holidays so yeah I think I I think it's really strong I think what he's trying to do, he does really well in this film. Like, yeah. like the laughs, the type of laughs he's going for, the type of chemistry he wants between them, 
Um, it, so th th that's the way I look at it. Um, and it's, it's, it's essentially a road trip buddy comedy. And I, I think he hits the net with in the packaging of a holiday film. And I think it works. Yeah, I mean, it definitely worked for me. I, it wasn't like when I rewatched it, I wasn't like falling on the floor laughing. I mean, actually, I don't, <laughs> I wasn't laughing as much as I thought it would. There were still some things I found really funny, but I just found it more just like comfortable and enjoyable to watch in that kind of John Hughes way. Um, and so it's like the energy of the movie, and like what, kind of what you said, what, you know, what he's trying to do, he really does accomplish. He's not trying to win Academy Awards here, be like that deep. And it's not like the kind of movie that's going to knock you on your ass or something with like thematics or anything. But like, I do think that the, like the comedy chemistry between Martin and Candy, I mean, that's really the meat and potatoes of this movie. And almost every scene, whatever bit they're kind of doing, they definitely pull off at like a really high level. And so, I mean, there are definitely scenes, you know, Steve Martin to me, I actually think is like an underrated dramatic actor in a lot of ways. And you can actually see some of his like dramatic acting chops in a couple scenes. And John Candy's one of those guys, he's just so comfortable with like who he is, especially in this time period. And it's like, he just brings out, he just has this amazing charisma. I mean, that scene where he's driving the car and he's like dancing around to the Ray Charles music, the, the, the doing the mess around. It's just like, that's just John Candy in a car, like listening to his song. And it's, it's exactly how you would imagine John Candy would be listening to his song. And it's just, it's just so entertaining to watch him just kind of do that kind of stuff. So that was the kind of stuff I really thought was great in the movie. Yeah, it's an, I feel so old saying like they don't do this type of comedy or they don't do these type of movies anymore, but they really don't. And it's like a physical comedy. We're not talking like Pratt Falls or anything gross like Jackass. It's he's just being funny and goofy like that. And it's like you said, there's like a charisma to him. I always think of like Falstaff from Shakespeare. It's like with any of those bigger actor guys, it's like there, there's a good th – there's a jolliness to him, for lack of a better word, that's, like, really infectious. And, no, he's great. And to your point, he seems like a great hand. At some point, like, there were certain times in this film where I kept just thinking, in today's film, if, if this movie were made today, this character would be, like, a serial killer. And halfway through the film, you find out his wife's body was in that trunk or, like, his last victim. Just, like, the, the DNA of this guy existing... First of all, if he existed in the 1980s, he was also a serial killer for sure. But just like it's like this guy's been living on the road for eight years. And I'm not saying that makes him bad by any means. Um, but just he seemed to have a lot going on psychologically beyond that. Like talking to it like so I'm not going to psychoanalyze him. It's a really fun film. Uh, John Candy does a great, great job of bringing this character to life. But it's uh, <laughs> looking at it now, I think there's some more interesting angles to the character. It just hasn't aged particularly well, I would say. Like, maybe his wife's been dead, like, two years, three years. Like, eight years is a little... <laughs> this guy's been living a lie for eight years. Like, that's a little strange. That was one of the few parts of the plot I actually found myself questioning at the end of it. I don't know that you need that little twist at the end that his wife's been dead for eight years. Like, you can kind of tell throughout the movie that he sort of has this fragile heart. I mean, the first big fight that, that Martin and Candy have, I think that's a great scene where Martin just kind of lets him have it. And he's like, you're this annoying person. You're a bladdermouth. Your stories have no point. He, just, he says all this awful stuff to him. And you can just see Candy, he's kind of breaking inside. And he's just like, you know what? I like myself. Like, you know, my wife likes me. And, like, he kind of goes and lays back. And I thought 
I thought Candy's acting was really well in that scene. You can just kind of see he's like internally hurt, but he's trying to be, you know, a little defensive about it. I'm not sure that you need that twist at the end where he's like, my wife's been dead for eight years. I think it, I think it would have just been nice if Martin was like, you know what, why don't you just come have Thanksgiving with my family? And you just kind of, I don't know that you need that extra touch to like dig a little deeper into the character, but I mean, I think I love, I love your point that if this movie was made today, I think you would have a much darker like, mask going on. Um, yeah, and I'm not going to rewrite the film, but to your point, yeah, I just, I knew she was, I knew she passed away. I remember that was the twist. And as I was watching the film, I just remember, I just felt so unnecessary. Like, or she could have been dead, but just say that earlier on. There was, there was two things though. First, I just wanted to, there's going to be more to talk about, but I meant to say this in the intro. Love that this is actual Thanksgiving setting. We have tons of hol- of Christmas, New Year's, Halloween films. I feel like there are even a ton of like football films with like homecoming, but there's very rarely the Thanksgiving set holiday film. So I love that this fills that gap or is one of the films that fills this gap. Uh, and the other thing was just that, oh shoot, I forgot what it was. I forgot what the other thing was. So I, I can always come back to it if I need to, but it was... I like, yeah, I like the Thanksgiving setting as well because it's one of those holidays that's like you don't have as big of a break usually as you do for Christmas. And so the whole idea of Martin trying to get back to his family on time, it's like there's not as much time and it kind of puts a little more like rapidity uh, on the schedule. And so, I, yeah, I, I like that it's kind of, you know, based on that setting and stuff. Um, I did. But, you know, awesome. I actually did need to ask one question. Um, oh shit, did this fucking slip my mind again? Excuse my language. Crap. No, it was, it was going to be, oh, about that fight, that first fight they have. It was, I agree. It was a really well acted scene. (laughs) I I remember uh, watching it. I remember having a confusion from previous times. They just, John Candy kind of defends himself, but it's this very, to your point, I think you said it's like, he kind of puts it on Steve Martin, but it's this very like passive defense. And then he just rolls over in bed and Steve Martin is like dressed with his bag packed. And then it just flashes to the next morning and they're sleeping next to each other. So Steve, Steve Martin didn't leave after that. He just like got back into bed. Well, this is the version I was watching. Like he slowly takes his hat back off and like, he doesn't say anything, but he just kind of gets back into bed. Okay. Okay. That, that, that was it. But I was, I mean, it takes some stones to let a guy have it like that and then get back. That was, I was just blown away. Blown away, but uh, th- not really a gripe. That was just kind of a question I had. I I think, ha- have you seen the, the film Due Date with Zach Galifianakis and Robert Downey Jr.? Yeah, yeah, kind of a similar movie. Yeah, it, like a road trip it's, movie. It's essentially a remake, and I think that film, that film had some issues, namely, I think Zach Galifianakis, outside of The Hangover, has a really hard time of reining his characters in to like make them like really accessible for a wider audience. Um, but he actually did some good things in that film. He also kind of did this weird effeminate affectation too, which like not that John Candy's effeminate in this, but he's like super sensitive almost to like a matronly maternal point at certain things. But that film struggled with tone with like Robert Downey Jr. There, like Zach Galifianakis was so weird and Robert Downey Jr. was so mean it just like didn't work. This film, uh, the reason I was going to ask was because I think this film does a better job of juggling like the tension. And I think there's about three fights between them or three arguments. 
And um, there's a couple blowups. There's a couple blowups, and when the car catches fire and they find like Mark finds out about the credit card thing, like that's definitely a moment. Oh, that, there's, there's got to be more than that. And then there's the train where they he leaves them at the train, and there's that weird like a breakup moment. It, they do a good <laughs> job with it. They, they do a good job with it. Um, I, I just thought that in this film they did a good job of building to it. But the only, but the one thing again at the end i have no problem that he invited him but it seemed like this like heart-wrenching decision for him like do i really have to invite this guy and like he only does it because he feels bad about the wife and then like when they go back in did you get weird vibes what was going on with the wife and the subplot like they would play this like really dramatic music as she looked wistfully in and then he, he comes in and like, I just felt like I was watching a totally different movie. Just the last few minutes, like lost me. Like I was. Yeah. I think, well, so a couple of things about that. Like I ha- I was reading that there were two different, much longer versions of this movie. Apparently the first cut was like a three hour cut and the second cut was like two and a half hours. And I actually think they did a really smart move making this like a 90 minute movie because it really, it shouldn't be like a two and a half, three hour movie. But I know John Hughes was kind of, it was a much longer movie and it was like a really long screenplay that he wrote. And so there was a lot of stuff that was kind of cut. I think one of the things was like a lot more scenes with the wife and the family and kind of a subplot between her and Mark. And so I think that was meant to be like a little bit more of a dramatic moment when they kind of reunite and she's like sort of forgiving him for all the shenanigans that he went through and whatnot and like, you know, missing stuff with the family during holiday times. But I also, I mean, I think what they're really going for at the end there is like, hey, this is Thanksgiving and like what it's all about is being like caring and like giving to other people. And so, you know, he's lighting candy into his home and it's like, it's kind of a, I will say that's probably the most dated scene in the movie because it's so melodramatic and it becomes so like overly sincere instead of like, I mean, you just watched like, you know, an hour and a half of just goofy, zany comedy. (laughs) And then like, you're just supposed to have this big dramatic kind of like overly sincere moment. And so, I mean, I'm with you. Like, it does feel like it's in, like, a different movie. At the same time, though, I do think it kind of wraps it up in the way that you have to. Like, I don't want to – like, I don't think it's really to be wrapped up on, like, a goofy joke or something. It's kind of like, hey, these guys ended up becoming friends, and, you know, he let them into his family. I don't know if it has to be as melodramatic as they made it with, uh, like, you know, um, it's that uh, – I think it's, uh, like, a Hall & Oates song that's playing at the end there. <laughs> yeah, they talk about it on Rewatchables. It's hard to end comedies on a fun tone, and, like, if you're not ending it – on like a sour note or a mean note, you, you, it's going to be a little melodramatic. Um, <laughs> the only, the only thing was that I kept thinking of what if I were one of those parents, either his or hers, like, and I'm there for Thanksgiving, <laughs> and my son or son-in-law walks in after missing for three days, disappearing for three days on the road with some big burly stranger, and be like, "This is Dell. He's going to live with us now." I would be a little concerned. I'd be like, okay, honey, he's either going to kill you or like this is, he's going to marry this guy and that's fine. But like something's going on here. You don't just know, make was, friends. Was he inviting him to live with him? I thought it was just like a Thanksgiving invite. Was it like, hey, you can come live with us? I saw that trunk. I mean, I feel like it's more than going to be more than some transient stay if he's like really going to be supporting him. I mean, this guy's going to need some, he's going to need therapy. He's going to need some serious help to get back on his feet and get over his wife. Oh, car. Yeah. 
it wasn't clear to me how he was like living on the road for you. I mean, I guess he was a great salesman. Like they have that scene where he's selling like that was <laughs> great shower rings for like earrings and stuff. And yeah, he's like he's just kind of hustling to make money. And so I guess that's how he was just kind of getting around for the last eight years. I mean, the eighties <laughs> were just a strange, strange time in this country. I will say one of my favorite scenes of I like your reaction to this scene as well. The the whole Steve Martin rental car thing. There's like a great physical comedy moment where like the car isn't there and he just loses his shit and it's like a full body Steve Martin freak out. It's one of those things that only it's like they go to this wide shot and it's just Martin's entire body is in agony over not getting his car. And then he walks in to the car rental place and it's the it's the same woman from Ferris Bueller that's like the principal's assistant. Yeah. And she's a great actress. She really kills it. And then she she does the whole thing where she's like on the phone talking about Thanksgiving to some family member while he's like waiting there. And I just thought that whole scene, I mean, was beautiful. Just the way she's acting and then, like, all the fucks that Martin lays down on her where he's just like, I need a fucking car. And she's like, oh, you don't have your rental agreement? Well, you're fucked. <laughs> it's just like, it's one of those things where it's like everyone's had a bad experience with the rental car thing like that. And I just thought it perfectly, like, encapsulated it. I couldn't agree more. I also, for anyone who's not from the Midwest and, like, goes there, like, yes, they're very nice, but they will tell you to fuck off, too. And that's kind of like being told to fuck off by a Canadian. It's just very jarring. Like yeah, when you hear yeah. that word come out of so, like such a nice person's mouth. So, um, but yeah, no, I thought that was really nice. One of the best things of the road trip aspect was it kind of allowed them to do like almost skits, like not it, it, like each, there's a new setting, like new characters and, and you get some pretty cool, like she was a great side character. You have, I think Dylan Baker Hall as the pig farmer. Yeah. Uh, like it, it gives them the opportunity to kind of mix it up. Like not all of them hit, but even like you mentioned, when he's selling the the shower rings, like that's great. That's you really get to focus on him as a character, and I like that how yeah. they, how they do show how this like how he's able to survive as an outdoor cat. So I, I like that a lot. Yeah, you know the weirdest cameo to me actually was the Kevin Bacon one early in the movie. And I was on, like. What the, like Kevin Bacon shows up and I'm like, oh, is he in this? Like I totally forgot. I was like, is he in this movie? And I was like, oh no, it's just it's like 30 seconds of Kevin Bacon. And I mean, it doesn't. That could be anybody. It's not like you need Kevin Bacon to pull off that little like taxi race scene. But like, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I I'm not saying it was like a waste of a cameo. I just thought it was odd. I thought it was odd. I mean, to me, it would make more sense for him to be the guy they were pitching to or his coworker. But two yeah. things, Bacon worked with John Hughes, right, on earlier films? Yeah, I think he did. He was in She's Having a Baby. All yeah. right, so I, 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 I would say that. And then the other thing, didn't he also kind of have, like, a villain reputation? So, like, like him being the guy to steal, like, or is that more of a later Kevin Bacon uh, stereotype? I, I mean, honestly, I think he's still, you know, hot off of Footloose right now. I think he's still kind of more of a, a, a good boy. I mean, the other, what was the other uh, movie? You, you ever seen Diner? With like Mickey Rourke, he's in that movie too. Uh, I, I haven't, but I've heard. Yeah, so he, he he was he was a he was okay. That's what I wasn't sure of. He was a big star at this time. I, I liked it. I didn't remember it. I liked it, but I definitely agree it's a little random. Um, but I I thought it was funny just for like anyone who's been in New York having to chase down taxis. Like that does happen sometimes. You get in like a foot race for someone. You see yeah. them like, or like you see them coming at the opposite side. So I thought I thought they did a great job with that, and I thought that was. Uh, it's really like an odyssey. It's almost like in the odyssey for him too. And I thought that was the, a great first of many trials and failures. 
Yeah, I, I, yeah, no, it's a good scene, and like the whole part where like Candy ends up stealing the the second cap, uh, it's kind of like a good introduction for like the two characters and like that weird look Candy gives them before he like <laughs> whistles away in the cap. It's uh, yeah, I mean it was interesting. I, I just yeah, I was just kind of like, why did we have Kevin Bacon there? Like we uh, like he doesn't even have a line. I don't think he doesn't say anything. Have we told the story about your Kevin Bacon's your Kevin Bacon interaction? I might have told that story once, but for anyone that doesn't know, there was a time, look, we were inebriated. We, I was only 18 years old. We were in the Bahamas at that Atlantis Resort, that very famous uh, grand exotic resort out there in the Bahamas. And um, I think it was the Adams Twins, or one of the Adams Twins was like, hey, Kevin Bacon's at that bar. And like everybody was nervous about it. And for whatever reason, I was the one that was decided to approach Kevin Bacon and try to like make some conversation. And I remember I went up to him and I asked him if he wanted to play the movie game, which was like a game we would all play back then where we'd like name an actor and try to name all the movies like that the actor had been in. And Kevin Bacon looked me right in the eyes and he said, no, I would not. <laughs> and that was the last time I spoke to Kevin Bacon. <laughs> that was always, but it was like I had enough guts to like ask them that question. And then I realized he didn't want to be bothered by an 18 year old drunk kid. And I just kind of walked away. Well, full kudos, full kudos to you for having the stones to even ask him. Actually, I feel bad about it looking back because it's like I hate being one of those person people that like bothers a celebrity right like that. But it was like I was, I had just enough to drink and I had been egged on enough by like I think it was Katie Adams or somebody that was like, no, no, you got to try to talk to him. And I was like, all right. I'll say there, there was a good amount of peer pressure behind it. It was, yeah, yeah. There was and, a lot. And like, yeah, I don't know. I actually think it should have been somebody a little more charismatic. I think, I don't know if I was the most, like, if you looked at me when I was 18, Jake, I don't know if I'm the person that you want to talk to if you're a celebrity. I'll be honest, I, I've seen that picture of us. I don't know if any of the guys in that group look like someone that a, a, a successful businessman or star would want to waste their time talking to. But at least <laughs> you went up there. You At least you went up there. I'm not proud of it. I, honestly, I'm not, not proud of it. But hey, you know what happened? It's part of my life. And, uh, if Kevin Bacon ever listened to this, you know, we, we, we did have that one conversation. You know, I mean, Seth, it, it might be nice if you were, like, nice to some of the celebrities you met. But who's the uh, Winter Soldier who you... you was did, about yeah, yeah. He you was, just, he was famous, you know. You, and we were, we were going hard in the paint in basketball there. Yeah, no, you you maimed Sebastian Stan, ended his, ended his career. You ruined... Kevin Bacon's family vacation, and then did, what? Didn't you mock Natalie Portman? I did not. But my my brother had more interaction with uh, with Natalie Portman and Emily Dreyfus when when he was at that camp. I, I um I may have said an offhand comment to Natalie Portman. I know I saw her in a play. <laughs> <laughs> I saw her in a play when she was like fifteen or something like that, and I may have made some comment, but I think she wouldn't remember me. Of all those people. The only person who would probably remember me is Sebastian Stan, because I'm sure he remembers when he uh, he just blatantly fell over after we bumped knees, and then he really, really milked it for all the girls that were, that were around us while I was standing playing good defense, Jake. I had my feet set. I was in front of the ball. I, I mean, I was coached well by those right high school coaches, so I still think um, I, I still think it was a it was a strong defensive play by me, and he just kind of he really he really I mean he was an actor. I was not a good actor. And he milked that moment for all it's worth. Well, ne next time you see Bacon, maybe you can challenge him to a game of horse or something. <laughs> oh, man. Um, 
All right. All right, we've, no, we've got <laughs> planes, trains, and automobiles. Is there anything else you want to talk about? Uh, yeah, I actually, I just kind of wanted to, do you want to have like a little bit of a John Hughes conversation? Yeah, I do. I, yeah, I got Q, I got Hughes and Candy queued up here. So yeah, l okay. let's dive into Hughes first. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, like, I feel like his, as time has gone on, his reputation has taken a little bit of a hit, especially like if you watch 16 Candles, there's several things that are super problematic about that movie. Uh, you know, there's like a date rape that's kind of just laughed off. There's like, there's some Asian um, racial things going on with the character in it that just aren't um, super dated. And so I, I think he, his reputation has taken a bit of a hit, but I actually think his movies are just super important. And it's like, he was the right director at the right time with the right group of actors. And like, I'm not saying I'm a huge fan of the Brat Pack or whatever, but like, I mean, he created a bunch of, like a whole class of stars and they're really good at a bunch of those movies. I mean, I think Ferris Bueller's Day Off is a great movie. I, of like the more Brat Patty movies, um, I think Breakfast Club is probably the one as melodramatic as it might seem. I think that's my favorite one. I really love the Judd Nelson performance in that movie. And I just like, it's really a play inside of a movie. And I just think it is one of the movies that kind of taps into adolescent thoughts and stereotypes and what's going on, like at that point in your life when you're in high school and you don't have it all figured out, but you're not like a kid and you're actually having like deeper thoughts about things. And I think it, it's like a funny movie, but it's also, it, it's serious at times. So I just think his movies. It's again, it's like it's of a certain era and it's with a certain group of actors and it all all of them kind of click in a different way. And I think he just turned out a lot. of. I mean, even up to Home Alone, Jake, it's like those movies are important movies. No matter. I mean, they're, they're not forgotten. It's, you know, I don't know. I don't know how you feel about them. Well, it's when you say that I knew I knew he wrote and directed and produced all these movies in the 80s. But like you say Home Alone, but I'm going to go even past Dutch was such a big movie in my family. And he didn't direct that, but he wrote that. But my that was, I love that film. Like actually, I'm gonna watch that with, I'm gonna watch it with my family this holiday season. Curly Sue, I, that was a movie uh, that I think um, I don't know if it was super successful, but that was a film that my family watched. Beethoven, that was a big one. Like uh, Dennis the Menace. Now, granted, I know that was a remake, but that The Miracle on 34th Street, 101 Dalmatians. Yeah, he's the, the Flubber, those are all films that I watched. Granted, I was a little old by the time Flubber came around, but that was like a Robin Williams film. So I, not all these films were super successful, I think, in terms of the box office, but definitely big in terms of imagination. Or as you said, they had like great rental runs or TV runs where our generation, no, Dennis the Menace, Miracle on 34th Street, Curly Sue and Dutch, those don't have the same gravitas as Weird Science, 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club. Uncle Buck, but like they're still great films, and uh, it's just the second half of his filmography or resume. It's it's really strong. I would say it's still really strong. I mean, the last twenty years, not so much, but the nineties. He has a lot of good production, especially in those early to mid nineties. Yeah, and I just like I, you just can't point to a lot of directors where you can say like they made multiple movies that were important to teenagers, and it's like. I just think that's a unique thing about him where it's like those movies were important to teenagers in the eighties. And then, you know, they were important, you know, when I grew up as a teenager, I would keep watching him. And so I did, you know, you can't point to a, to a director right now and be like, Oh, this guy makes great like teenage comedy dramas. I mean, there just isn't somebody like that. I don't think, and like, I don't know if there was somebody like that before. And so I just think it's an interesting little niche he carved out for himself. And then, like you said, he, you know, the second half of his, of his career, 
you know, those are still, you know, big movies that, you know, I think connected with audiences, but I definitely think his eighties run is just a unique period of time where he's making movies for a certain age group that people just didn't make those type of movies for that age group before. No, it's also interesting is he's clicking with like all the quadrants. He's making films for teenage boys and young men with weird science. Pretty in pink is like, a, that's a female, like, yeah, there's like, that's a romantic female film. He's getting parents and older people with planes, trains, and automobiles, and the and the vacation films, like families love vacation films. And then he's also doing like young. He moves into younger content, whether it's Home Alone or, as I said, Dutch Flubber, Hundred One Dalmatians. He starts making some Disney things. Like yeah. he, he's able, he has had success writing different types of movies for different audiences across generations. And to your point. What's interesting is he really connected with those teenager audiences. And those 80 films still resonated in the 90s. That's why they're still so popular. I'm sure they resonate today because he was tapping into something that was happening in suburban America that really was relatively new, at least at that point. Like if that suburban America was now two or three generations old after World War II. And it was yeah. like, like, just showing what was going on there. It's like, yeah, these parents or grandparents like created this perfect little cul-de-sac but there's still stuff going on. There's still problems on that call the stack. These these kids have issues. Like so, uh, it kudos to him. Like he is probably one of the most influential filmmakers. I I, I would say he's probably one of those in, influential and underrated filmmakers of the last thirty years. Um, I, I agree. Yeah, definitely. But and it's like I mean, yeah. And I think you know, like you said, like in the '90s, I think those movies were you know important to us. I do think as time has gone on. He's getting a little too much criticism for, you know, like I said, 16 Candles has a lot of kind of issues with it if you look back at it now. And so I think people today are kind of focusing a little bit too much on that and not as much on like what he really brought to, to Hollywood and what his influence was. Okay, let's move on to the Candyman right now. I love John Candy, mainly because... My parents loved John Candy, but it was nice because I, I was a bigger kid and I loved that he was this like this big guy who was like in the front and center of all these films. And I just loved him. Like we talked about it. He, he is a charm. He has like this false stuff sensibility. And I, I just really, and also, I mean, I love his films. Like we're, we're talking about planes, trains, and automobiles, but I knew him more so from Spaceballs, The Great Outdoors, The Great Outdoors, Who's Harry Crumb, Uncle Buck. Yeah. Those were the films that, that I grew up with that were, and I absolutely just, I love him. I love him. I love him. I, he was also in um, National Women's Vacation and Stripes. I, I won't go through the whole tech, through his whole filmography now, but I absolutely loved him. I do, I, yeah. I mean, I, I really enjoy all, all those movies. I, I can, I, I have fond memories of. They're very nostalgic. Uh, a lot, you know. You watch like something like Uncle Buck, and I mean, it's kind of a throwaway movie, but at the same time, it's just such a. If you start watching that movie, it's so hard to stop watching it because he's just he's so fun to kind of be around. I remember, you know, Conan O'Brien had a story once where he was like. Some people, you know, in Hollywood aren't who, who you think they might be. You know, he was like, if you hang around Steve Martin, he's much different than the white man in the suit doing comedy or, you know, what, what you see in his comedies. He's a much more reserved kind of like almost professorial type of person. Mm -hmm. And it, but he was like, you know, he spent a day with John Candy once 
and he was exactly who you thought he would be. It was just like hanging out with, you know, all of those characters. And so I do think, not to critique John Candy here, but I will say a lot of those characters are very similar. And so there was a lot of times where I do think he's just kind of playing John Candy. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that because that character works in so many different movies. And it just is, he is just so, uh, he, he really just jumps off. He's one of those guys that jumps off the screen to you. Like he just becomes a, a real life character. You, you we look larger than like, life. Yeah, exactly. Larger than life. And I think we all kind of have a friend that's like that. That's a little too burly, a little too, you know, up in your grill and like, kind of like overly talkative maybe, but also it's just kind of like, you can't help but like them and feel for that person. And so I also think, you know, when I, when I look at like, um, I do think that Chris Farley took a lot from those John Candy movies. Cause if you watch, um, Tommy boy, I think there's a lot, a lot of similarities where it's like the comedy and the dramatic moments that there he's able to pull off that look really similar to me, especially, you know, even some of what's going on in planes, trains and automobiles. And so I do think there's a little bit of a torch passing there. It is really sad that Candy died, you know, when he did. Um, same with Farley. Um, and so it's like, I do wish he could have made some more movies. Right, is there anything else you want to talk about? Or should we, should we move into final scores? Uh, yeah, I think we can go into final scores. Uh, I can go first. I feel like I always put you on the spot. For me, there's a lot to like about this film. I really like the chemistry between Candy and Martin. I think they overall, I think sometimes it veers into melodrama, but I think overall they do a pretty good job of juggling that tension and that tone throughout the film. Also love that it's 90 minutes. Hearing that there was a three hour and a two and a half hour, I don't care what was in those other, that 90, missing 90 minutes, this is the right length for this film. Uh, so, and even with that kind of sloppy ending, it, it's a very strong film. I like it. My final score, uh, and also one more thing. I said it before, I'm going to say it again. Love that it's giving some love to Thanksgiving. Personally, my favorite holiday. And um, as someone who's had to travel for it recently, I had some more appreciation, especially with the rental car stuff, as uh, having gone through some of those things on Thanksgiving, had a little more appreciation. So, I'm giving it a seven point. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna give it a seven point two. That's a little high. Um, it's probably be more in the sixes, but I'm giving it some nostalgia points here and also some Thanksgiving. Okay. Yeah, I think we're uh, as usual, Jake. We're kind of right in the same range there. Um, I agree. I think like you know the bread and butter of the movie being uh, um, <laughs> Candy and and Martin. Um, I just think. Their chemistry is really good. It actually kind of makes me wish that they had tried maybe like, I know that they weren't a comedy duo, but it would have been interesting to see like another Candy Martin movie, you know, not that they're like Spade and Farley or something, but it like, they definitely, I feel like that dynamic could have worked again uh, in, in a different context maybe. And so I felt like it could have been like of, an Abbott and Costello type thing. They both had great physical yeah. comedy, like, and also there's that, there's a clear, size and height discrepancy I, I i agree and they also had just great chemistry i agree i think there was a missed opportunity there yeah yeah definitely and so um so it does kind of like it, it is a movie that kind of leaves me wanting like more of this combination and so i think that's a good thing at the end of the day i think it's an interesting movie inside of the john hughes kind of like filmography as well where it's like hey i'm not doing a teenage movie here i'm just doing an adult comedy about thanksgiving and it like it totally works and it's like yeah like you said it's like he wasn't kind of locked into one genre. He actually 
it's a similar style of humor, I would say, and similar feel, but it's like, it's a different, you know, it's more of an adult movie. And so, um, and yeah, just like all the different things they hit, uh, I like the Thanksgiving setting as well. Um, I like a lot of the different bits inside of the movie. And so I think I'm coming in like at 7.0. Um, I don't think it's like one of the great cinematic feats of all time or anything like that, but I do think like if you need a holiday movie to watch with your family and you need a few laughs, like this is definitely going to deliver. And, and that's what it's trying to do. You know, it's not like trying to be anything more than that. So I think I'm right there with you at like a 7.0. Um, yeah. Wish, uh, wish we could have gotten a little more candy and Martin, you know, it's a nice, it's a, it's a nice, nice combo there. Yeah. Serve me up that road trip. I'll see that sequel. I was yeah. Well, actually, one other thing, like the other movie, you know, you mentioned um, that Galifianakis movie. The other movie I kind of thought about when watching it was a Midnight Run with um, uh, De Niro and uh, Grodin. I watched that recently. Yeah, I really like that movie as well. I'm not sure if this is better. I mean, it's kind of a different movie. You know, Midnight Run isn't really like the holiday type of movie, but just like that same kind of thing where it's like two different types of guys on the road and then they develop a relationship. And I just think it's a, it's always a good kind of thing to throw two different actors into. It's just like a nice, Hey, let's do a road trip with two different dudes. I think it might've been a little, a little more played out by the time Downey and Galifianakis did it, I guess. It is. Is your point. I feel like for actors, it's probably really hard, but it's also a real challenge because it just gives you and this guy the opportunity, like whether it's improv or playing off each other, but it's like, you're really just building, especially these road trip things. We said, it's like, you're building something new in each scene. So it's like a lot falls on the actors to carry that over and they're just really give the film gravity. So yeah, it's not to over again, it's not a masterpiece. They're not like breaking the wheel here, but reinventing the wheel but at the same time i think what they're doing is pretty challenging and they're pulling it off and it's yeah i mean it's funny i guess we you see candy with twos all the time but you never get this trifecta back together again which seems so weird right. given their sensibilities um, yeah yeah how, oh one other how did you feel about the soundtrack <laughs> it was good but i'm not gonna lie like as i said there are a lot of scenes with the wife where like there's sometimes where it felt like almost like overpowering where like it almost took me out of it whereas like this is so like yeah. melodrama like i don't know how i should be feeling or i'd be like the feeling i have right now from this music isn't matching what i'm seeing on the screen or how what i feel in the story i mean there were some no, good drops but it's like yeah. hit or miss like that, that weird um that kind of like very 80s thing with the scratch in it and like it was just one of those odd kind of 80s songs that was like thrown into a couple scenes and i was just like i don't know if this is what i would score the movie with but it dated I mean, it i, I get it the yeah, the music dated. definitely dated it. I feel like, yeah, I agree. Not that the clothing or setting didn't do that either, but yeah, there are a few times where I was like, "This feels like that's an '80s riff." But I felt like I like heard it in other films. Yeah, it sounded like a Wang Chung ripoff or something. Which is like, I mean, hey, if you're gonna rip off anybody, you might as well be Wang Chung. Yeah, yeah, when in Rome. All right, a seven and a seven point two. Shall we put a bow on this little yeah. gift? Put it under the tree. Happy Thanksgiving, post-Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving post and an early one for next year because we're probably going to miss it again next year. But just pre and post. Happy Thanksgiving. Eat turkey. (laughs) No, eat vegetables. Save turkeys. Oh, wow. I like that.